Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So as we come to the end of 1 Samuel chapter uh, 31, we're coming to the end of King Saul. Now as we're going to read this story today, it is an unbelievably tragic tale. And it's a tragic tale because we've been following the life of Saul all the way back from the beginning of 1 Samuel, and when Saul first shows up, he's not like the Saul we see today. When Saul first shows up, all he was doing was trying to find his dad's donkey. He wasn't trying to be somebody. He was a humble nobody, and he was happy being a humble nobody. But God called him and said, you're going to be the next king. And he had this remarkable experience with this prophet, Samuel. He was anointed by the Lord. The Spirit rushed on him. He had this moment where he's prophesying. And one of his first acts when he became king was that he came to the aid of this city called Jabesh-Gilead that was being attacked by the king of the Ammonites. And he comes in and he saves them and he does the right thing and he restores the clan and he brings the nations out of 12 tribes under under one nation. But then he starts doing these things when he gets the crown that seem out of step with what God called him into. He starts obeying but, but only like 75%. He starts walking in disobedience in other areas. He comes to a place where he literally feels his own kingdom being challenged and rather than submitting to what the Lord wants, he rebels. God has said, I've had enough of the way you've been living. I'm gonna rip the kingdom away from you. I'm gonna give it to this other kid named David and Saul loses his mind. And he spends almost 15 years of his life and most of the economy of Israel chasing down this one kid who is a threat to his throne. And it leaves the country in complete disrepair. Things are a mess. And as we come to the chapter 31 today in 1 Samuel, we're confronted with this reality the author is trying to show us. He says, do you see how Saul started? And do you see how he's ending? The author is trying to get us to understand it doesn't matter how you start, it's how you finish. That's the lesson of Saul. Congratulations, you started so well, you loved the Lord, you went to a summer camp, you got saved, you got serious one Sunday morning because the message was really heavy and you started crying, you came down to an altar, you made a decision, good, that's awesome. But where are you now? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's the lesson of Saul, and that's an important lesson for us today. Because how we end as people is crucial. And it's crucial because we're told in the New Testament, texts like 1 Timothy 4.1, that says the Spirit expressly says that in latter days, many will depart from the faith because of deceitful teachings, because of teachings from demons. 
The Bible is pretty clear. We're living in the last days. Every moment from the period of time after Jesus rose from the dead until he, set, he returns at his second coming. The Bible, the, the New Testament writers talk about that period of time as the last days. Okay? Not just because you're watching the news and weird things are starting to happen. You're like, oh, this is really strange. No, that's not why it's the last days. It's the last days because Christ has returned. He's come once and he's coming again. And that period of time is the last days. And in that period of time, we are told that the closer we get to his second coming, things are going to get worse, not better. Things are going to get more confusing. That there is going to be an increase in the deception among the nations. And that deception is, come from, is, is coming from one place, spiritual darkness. Demons are going to find ways to take leadership positions and spew any doctrine that they can come up with that is contrary to the word of God. And frankly, they don't care what it is. There's a hundred different kinds of teachings that will pull you away from Christ. It is a wide path and anybody can walk on it. And if we're looking at the life of Saul and saying, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, then we need to consider how we're going to finish. And we need to take seriously the things that the Word of God is expecting of us now so that we end well in our lives and don't get caught up in a modern deception that pulls our hearts away from God. You following me? All right. So with that in mind, we're going to get into 1 Samuel chapter 31. But before we do, I want to show you a map of the region so we kind of understand what we're looking at and the cities we're going to be referencing. Because most of you people have probably never been in this region. And even if you have, the cities have different names. So I just want to give you a sense of what it looks like. So we're going to start off with the world map. We're going to zoom in right here in this area. This is going to be the location of uh, Israel probably around the time of about 1000 B.C., up here at the top, you got Sea of Galilee, that's still there. Dead Sea, still there. Mediterranean Sea is still there. But some of these cities and uh, towns, they have different names. Some of them are the same. Mount Gilboa is still there. Nobody moved the mountain. But you've got a reference down here at the bottom, 30 miles between these places. These are the locations that are going to be referenced in our text today. Now, where we left last week was that David had gone down to his home in Ziklag and found out that he had been destroyed by the Amalekites. And so he disappears. He fall, him and his troops go south, back down here to this region to get his family back. And as they head back up to Ziklag, this is where we're picking up today, the war that's up here in the north around Mount Gilboa breaks out. It's against the Israelite army led by King Saul with Jonathan at his side and all of the Philistines. So while David is coming back to Ziklag after what happened last week, Saul is fighting the Philistines this week in chapter 31 up in Mount Gilboa. The war doesn't go well, Saul dies. The Philistines treat his body uh, in an inhumane way. They chop off his head and they, they take his body and they pin it to the wall in this city called Bethshan. And it's left there until the men of this city, Jabesh Gilead, decide to come in the middle of the night with an army to remove the bodies off the wall and to bury them in their hometown. Now, why is that important? It's important because Jabesh Gilead was the first city that Saul saved when he took over as king. And this city has a long history with Saul's tribe, the Benjamites, that goes all the way back to the book of Judges. 
They, didn't, they were not nice people. They didn't like each other. Things were bad between Jabesh Gilead and the tribe of Benjamin, which is where Saul is from. But the first thing Saul did when he took the throne was restore that broken, that bad blood, that broken relationship by coming to the aid of the city and saving them. And the first thing that Jabesh Gilead did when they saw that Saul's body was being desecrated was come and save the day. That's why it's important. So with that in mind, let's get into it. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Start in verse one. It says, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So we're up at the top of the map you just saw. The war didn't go well. The Philistines are fighting against Israel and they are destroying Israel. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchashua, and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So the first six verses of chapter 31 show us the dismantling of Saul's kingdom has finally come to completion. In fact, we're told four times that Israel fell, Saul fell, the armor bearer fell, and Saul's sons fell. That's verse one, verse four, verse five, and verse eight. The author is driving home this point that it wasn't just Saul that was defeated. Saul was defeated, and his sons were defeated, and his armor bearer was defeated, and the whole, the whole nation was defeated. The, Every military man in this battle was defeated. And he's doing this, he's, he's recording it this way to drive home the point that this is not a good thing. That from all outside observers, this looks like we might be at the end of Israel. The whole battle is lost. The whole military is destroyed. The king is gone. His sons are gone. There's nobody to take the throne. From all outside observation, this moment in 31 looks like it's the end. And it would look like, it wouldn't just look like the end, but it it would be the end if this story was Saul's story. Let's be honest, if this story, if the Bible is about Saul, his end is here and that's it. But this book isn't about Saul and this isn't his story. This is God's story. And the author is trying to get us to understand in the context of the way he set it up, from all outside circumstances, from all outside observation, from the Philistines' perspective, they won. But the author wants you to think just, just 
maybe three chapters before, 1 Samuel 28, 19. Why did this come about? Did this happen? Was Israel destroyed in an afternoon and Saul killed and his sons murdered? Did this happen because the Philistines were stronger? Because at the end of the day, evil wins? No. The author wants you to remember 1 Samuel 28, when Saul went to the witch of Endor and said, I'm at the end of my rope, what should I do? And Samuel comes back to him, and Samuel says, "Um, I got bad news for you, you are at the end of your rope. There is no hope for you. When you go to battle tomorrow, the Lord is gonna give the victory to the Philistines and you're gonna be destroyed, and tomorrow you and your sons are gonna be in the same place I am. See, that's a different perspective. If you're looking at this story from a worldly perspective, this looks like Saul has come to an end and things look bad for Israel and frankly for God. But if you go back just a few chapters and you remember what set this up, the Philistines aren't winning. God is using the Philistines to accomplish his plan. And that is the point of what we're looking at today. It's all about perspective. Perspective is very, very important. It's important for how you're interpreting the word of God, and it's also important for how you're interpreting the world around you today. When you're reading this story, from our perspective, or from the Philistines' perspective, things look really, really bad. But then we're reminded that Saul isn't the main character, and God has another plan in place. And the plan is, because of Saul's disobedience, God used the Philistines as a tool in his own hand to execute judgment on Saul, to then bring about the next plan. Because what? as soon as we turn the page here and get into 2 Samuel, there's another king that's going to step up, and this king's going to be better than Saul. So when you look at the story, you're thinking, man, things look bad. The world looks bad. Evil is winning. No, it's not. Evil is not winning. God is using the enemy to accomplish his own plans, and the the end game for this plan is that he will establish a new king that will usher in the great King Jesus. So perspective is important because as you're reading this, you're like, oh man, Looks like the end. Well, that's how the enemy wants you thinking. He wants your perspective so fixed on the characters, on Saul, that you start forgetting what this book is about. Look, if you go to this book and you read this book convinced that this book has something for you to change you, that this book is all about you, that, that you need an answer to your question, you are approaching the book wrong. This book isn't about you. This book is about him. This is his story. And until we start understanding that, then we're going to fall into these traps of looking at the world around us and being convinced that the news reports coming our way are telling us the truth about the world around us. Now, if I were to guess, I would say that watching the news, most people are probably like an all-time low of trusting what a news anchor is saying to us, right? But the interesting thing has happened. We trust the news anchor less And for whatever reason, we trust the random guy on YouTube that shoots a video from his basement even more. (laughs) There's these YouTube algorithms that are recommending, and all it does is it, it recommends to you the worst part of you. 
I, I, I did a YouTube search one time. I was looking for this one guy's video on something that had to do with eschatology. And now I've got this recommendation. Uh, it is nonsense, but there's this guy. He's in front of a whiteboard and he's got this tie that's too short and he's doing all these things and there's pictures and, and he's talking about the, the end time. Chad sent me one the other day about a guy talking about how the Ark of the Covenant was actually uh, a radioactive uh, energy source. And if you got too close to it, it would burn you. you gotta, and the priests had to wear rubber boots to stay safe. And how the, how the pyramids actually conducted electricity and drew electricity out of the ground, and that's why they were such a superior. Look, there is all kind of nuts stuff out there. But for some reason, we trust the news anchor less, but we trust this dude. We don't know who he is or where he's from, but this guy's making some sense. And all of a sudden, our, our, our living rooms, we've got pictures on stuff and red lines drawing, and we're trying to convince our friends about all this bizarre stuff happening. The point I'm trying to drive home is that the Word of God offers a perspective that this world just can't offer you. And if all you do is feed your soul with either one of these anchors, it doesn't matter where the news is coming from, the enemy is in all of it. He doesn't care what news station you watch, he doesn't care what YouTube channel you subscribe to, because he's got his fingers in all of it. He's running the people who are running the algorithms. And my point is, if you are more familiar with social media and the news of the day than you are with this book, you are walking in deception and you are going to be a sucker for the teachings of demons. They're coming your way. But I got good news. You don't have to live like that. You can turn that stuff off and you can get your face in this book and you can invite what the Holy Spirit is doing through what the author wrote and consider the fact that from the world's perspective, it looks like maybe God is absent and evil is increasing and things are, are as bad as they ever have been. Or you can look at this book and see that that actually happens a lot where it looks like from the outside things are bad, but from God's perspective, they're actually happening exactly the way he wants them to. In fact, they're happening this way because God declared it, not because he's just sitting around me and like, well, I mean, I'm going to have my way. We'll let the demons do what they want to do because they have some power. That's not how any of this works. God decrees a thing, and when he says that thing, it will happen. And in Scripture, when we're told that in the latter days many will leave the faith because of deceitful teachings and the doctrines of demons, you can believe that is going to happen. You're going to read more news reports about more people leaving the church. And the reason why is because as a people, we're suckers for stuff that isn't truth. Because we seem to be allergic to the truth. We don't like reading it. We don't have time for it. We'd rather somebody else spoon feed it to us. Well, guess what? Who, guess who is ready and willing to spoon feed you the truth? Satan. Satan loves spoon feeding you if you're too much of a baby to cook a meal for yourself. He loves that stuff. He loves making meals for you. And there'll be all kinds of mixture of like ancient theology and meditation and stuff that was passed years ago. All of a sudden, this stuff is back. He loves it. So my point is perspective. The Word of God offers you a perspective on things from this Word, but also a perspective on how you're supposed to see the world. Now, based off of perspective, let's get back to the story. Let's go to verse 7. 
When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. See, when the news reports hit, Israel has lost, Saul is dead, his sons are dead, everyone freaked out. Everybody abandoned their homes because they had put their hope in this king and not in God. And guess what happens when you move out of your home, when you, when you allow fear to seize your heart? Guess what? The enemy moves right in. He loves living in your house. The enemy loves living here. He loves when you don't lock the back door, spiritually speaking. He loves when you compromise and you open that window and he sneaks into the middle of the night. He loves living there. He likes sitting on your couch. He likes talking to your children through TikTok, through Instagram. He loves discipling your kids in and, and, and ideologies that are contrary to the word of God. The enemy loves living in your house. But how does he get there? When you flee in fear. When you don't stand firm on the word of God and you trust him, the enemy sneaks in. When fear seizes you, he's got you. And then starts this slow drip of things that are contrary to the, work of the, the, to, 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 to the word of God. And all of a sudden you look around, your family is being discipled by the world. And guess who's behind the world? It's the spirit of Babylon. It's the great dragon. That's what we study in Revelation. All of this stuff connects. You're like, now you sound like one of those guys who's connecting the red... <laughs> The next day when the Philistines came to strip the land, oh, excuse me, strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons found on Mount Gil, fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and they fasted seven days. So we see the Philistines taking advantage of the situation. All the Israelites move out of town and the Philistines take the armor and they throw it in the temple of their gods as a way of de decre decreeing this one simple thought. We have conquered God. Now we've talked about this before. We talked about this early in the book. Like our understanding of these ancient tribes and the way they functioned and the spiritual demonic demon forces that functioned as idols in their region, we don't think that way anymore. But if you want to understand this text, you have to think like they did. These guys didn't have make-believe gods. They, they didn't have th this, this idol. No one, like, like Barry over here, he, he makes idols, and so like make me an idol and we're going to worship it. No, this idol is connected to a demonic spirit, a fallen angel who has elevated himself above God and in claiming to be a god and is influencing this region. That's what Paul tells us idols are. They're demons. So these guys, they take Saul's armor and they lay it at the feet of this idol in declaration, my God has beat their God. Remember what I was saying a minute ago about perspective? From their perspective, our God wins. Yahweh has been defeated. But as we said previously, that's not actually what's going on here. What's going on here is that God 
in his generosity, brought judgment on Saul so that he could bless his people with a better king named David. See, this is the perspective switch that you have to get in your mind if you're gonna read the word of God correctly or if you're gonna understand the things that are happening in this world. Because I hear this over and over. Pastor, what do you think is happening? Things are getting bad out there. Things are getting dark, evil where you can. I can't shop at Target anymore. Things are so bad. What, what, what am I supposed to do? I got news for you. Wrong perspective. Listen, hear me as clear as I possibly can. The enemy is never winning. Hear me. The enemy is never winning. Ever. Any perception that you have that he may be winning is a wrong perception that you have because what's actually happening, about to pull the curtain back, what's actually happening is in God's mercy and in his kindness and in his love, he's accomplishing his plan by pulling the curtain back on evil so that it's clear that it's evil. So all of our perception that like things are getting bad, they're not getting bad, they've always been bad. So this understanding that things are getting worse the closer that we get. Yes, they are getting worse, but only from the perspective that as God pulls the curtain back and light shed, and he sheds light on this darkness, you realize how disgusting this stuff was. You mean these celebrities were into that? Yeah. You mean these politicians were? Absolutely. Well, I thought he was just, no, he's not a good guy. He's lying to you. And every, every news report, you're like, oh man, something else happened. Some other pastor, some, some other guy fell, some other. That is God's kindness. That isn't even his judgment. You want to read about his judgment? Go read the, the last chapters of Isaiah. Go read the book of Revelation. His judgment, when he comes back riding on the clouds, melting mountains with the, the, just his sheer voice, that's judgment. What he's doing now, exposing some pastor, that's not judgment, that's his kindness. That's him saying, I'm giving you the opportunity to turn from this, because you still have breath in your lungs and you still can. So as we see this, we're like, oh, things are getting dark. Things aren't getting dark. Satan isn't winning. Evil isn't getting stronger. They're losing. God is winning, and what you're watching is God revealing all of the darkness so that at the end of the age, none of us are sitting around going, well, I've been looking at this thing for 10 minutes, and, and, and I, I don't know if this is evil or not. No, it'll be abundantly clear. This, this perception that we have, that the, the same perception that the world has, that, that, well, you know, you said your God was gonna come back. You said that 2,000 years ago. Where is he? I don't know if I can trust, like, every, what he says doesn't come true. Like, where is he? No, no, no. He hasn't come back because we are operating in this last period of time in a time of kindness and generosity and mercy. He hasn't come back because he's giving you time. He's offering you the gift to turn from your sin and turn to him because if you don't, then judgment is coming. And we read this story, we see the Philistines, they're, they're, they're fools just like we are fools, just like the world is fools. They, they look at this and they think, God, God's, God's lost. We have won. No, you haven't won. 
You are being used, you're, you're actually, your situation is worse than, than losing because what actually happened is God used you and you didn't even realize it. And that extends into this, this theme that's found in the last uh, few verses of this chapter of generosity. The perception is off because we're seeing evil as advancing, but what's actually advancing is God's generosity, God's kindness in exposing evil for what it is so that no one has an excuse at the end of the age. I didn't know, I thought this was good. No, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. So in the middle of the story, we see this generosity, this, this perceived, this, this perception that things are going bad, things are not good, and all of a sudden there's a group of guys who aren't fleeing from their towns, they're not worried about the perception because they wanna exercise the kind of generosity that's extended to them, and we see these guys from Jabesh Gilead. They come in and they save the bodies of Saul, and they save the bodies of his sons. They bring them back and bring them, give them a, a proper burial. And that section right there, just the, the generosity of these men buried in the middle of sorrow reminds us of the importance of learning how to trace God's generosity in the middle of sorrow and sin. It's incredibly important. And here's the reason why it's important. Because if you don't learn to look at sorrow and sin and see generosity from God, then you look at sorrow and sin and you think one of two things. Either God doesn't care or he has no power to do anything. If you look at the world today and your assumption is not, man, he is being so generous. Look at all the opportunities people have to turn from their sin to a holy God and receive salvation from Jesus Christ. If that's not what you see, then when you look at all of the darkness, your perception will be off and you will say, well, it's so bad, he must not care. Maybe he forgot about us. Or maybe he approves of this. Which I would say is probably even the worst. And we do that a lot too. When, when we do something that's clearly contrary to the word of God, and then God doesn't do anything, we don't get punished, nothing happens, you're like, oh, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't see. Or maybe, maybe he approves of this affair that I'm having. Ooh, the spirit expressly says, that in the latter days, many will fall away from the faith because of deceitful teachings, because of doctrines of demons. That's, that's what you're falling under. Now let's get into 32, or uh, 32, 2 Samuel chapter one, and let's see how the story of Saul and uh, Saul's sons catches David. Now David is back in Ziklag where we were talking about at the beginning, we were looking at the map and this is what it says, 2 Samuel chapter one. This is after the death of Saul when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you, where do you come from? And he said to him, well, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, well, how did it go? Tell me. He's asking about the battle. And he answered, he said, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and, and they're dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. 
And the young man who told him said, oh, excuse me, verse five, and David said to the young man, well, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, well, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And he looked behind him and he saw me and he called out to me. And I said, here I am. And he said to me, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm just an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and, and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. What is happening? What you're reading, this guy, this Amalekite, is what we call an opportunist. This guy found Saul's dead body, took the crown and the armlet and brought a story to David with the hopes that David will reward him for being the man that crowned him king. How do we know that? Because the author just told us what happened to Saul in the last chapter. There's no confusion. When an author tells you in the Bible, when an author tells you what happens, and then some random Amalekite comes up with a different story, you trust the author. Now David doesn't know this guy is lying. This guy is convinced he's doing David a favor. He reads the situation wrong. His perspective is off. He thinks David's gonna be grateful because the guy who has been chasing him for the last 15 years is now dead. And this is the guy who's bringing him the crown. Here's the one problem. This crown, this throne, it wasn't the Amalekites to give. David had just come back from a raiding party against Amalekites. Remember that? The Amalekites had just raided his hometown. And now this Amalekite is in and he's like, hey, here's the crown, my man. I, I helped you out. I killed the king. It was really bad, but... David looks at this guy and this guy's like, so, so, you're king now. And David does not respond like this guy thinks he's going to. Go to the next verse 11. Then David took off his clothes and tore them and so did all the men who were with him. At that moment, you know the guy is like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. Why is he crying? And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for all the people, the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he said, um, I'm the son of a, a sojourner in, in Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, execute him. And he struck him down so he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David had an unbelievable sense of reverence and honor for Saul. 
Why? Why? Saul wanted him dead. Saul spent most of his life chasing him down, trying to kill him. Why did David respect Saul so much? Two big reasons. One, Saul was God's anointed. God chose Saul. That means Saul is God's problem, not David's problem. God put Saul in leadership. Saul is, Saul is God's issue, and David's like, I, I'm not touching it. That's not my problem, that's, that's, that's you. I'm gonna mind my own business over here. That's the first one, because Saul was God's anointed and David had respect for the Lord and therefore he had respect for Saul. But number two, Saul was the best teacher David ever had. You're saying, well, I don't know. I mean, not from what I read. He seemed miserable. Some of the most miserable teachers are the best teachers. You can certainly learn from someone teaching you the right way, but you can often learn more watching someone make mistakes so you don't have to make those mistakes yourself. So this is what David is caught up in. He has this tremendous respect for Saul because he's the Lord's anointed, but also because of what he meant to him personally. And when Saul and when David meets this Amalekite, he finds a man who has absolutely zero regard for Saul in the two ways that David had uh, regard for him. And because he had no regard for Saul, he clearly has no regard for God because, the, because Saul was God's man. And therefore, David killed the man. Now let's go to verse 17. What happens when the story comes to a close? After Saul's death, after the weeping, after the sorrow, after the killing of the messenger, what happens next? Go to verse 17. David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. That's important. He didn't just write this lamentation or this sorrow song. He said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And he said, O oh, glory, excuse me, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, those are Philistine cities, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. The mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely. In life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places and I am distressed for you. My brother Jonathan, my very, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Why did he say that? That's weird. How could Jonathan's love surpass the love of a woman? Because in this culture, the only thing that a wife 
was partner to her husband in was procreation and parenting. In this culture, the wife wasn't her husband's best friend. The wife was a, a, a parent, was, was, was a, a, a partner in raising children and expanding the family, but, but a wife in this culture wasn't the best friend of a man. And so what, what David is writing in the song is that this guy, he was closer to me and surpassed relationally to me than things that are, than, 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 than a woman that I would even have a family with. This guy meant everything to me. We were best friends. Verse seven, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So the question at the end here is what does David do with the news of Saul and Jonathan? Well, he writes a song. And the song contains two important components. One, it's a warning to the enemy. Don't you dare talk poorly about Dave, about Saul and Jonathan. Don't go through the streets exclaiming how you conquered him. You didn't conquer anything. The Lord did that to bring judgment on him. Do not mock God's anointed. And the second thing it did is it contained the best of Jonathan and Saul. You know what's, what's not in here is the story about how David, or how David had to run for his life from Saul, how he had to uproot his family and move over to the Philistine camp for 16 months just to get away from this tyrant. What's in here is not all the times that Saul grabbed the spear and threw it and tried to pin David against the wall. None of that's in here. Why is none of that in here? Because this brings us back to our original theme that I said at the beginning perspective. David made a decision. This is how we are going to remember Saul. All you men that have been following me for years, you were there. You watched him come after me. You, you watched, you were with me hiding in the cave when this guy kept coming. Some of you guys were there, some of you weren't when he was trying to pin me with a spear. This guy wanted my blood for years, but we're not gonna talk about that. I am not going to let anyone speak ill of this man because I am who I am today because of this man. And he put it in song and he taught it to everyone. What does that mean that he taught the song to everyone? That guaranteed it's solidified in history that the record of Saul would be this and not the gossip that his troops would want to spread when no one else is around. Because let's be honest, this story, it's ripe with gossip. You could spend all night sitting around the campfire talking about all the things that Saul did to David, but David was the one who had those things coming his way and he made the decision from now on, this is how we're going to think about our situation. This is how we're going to talk about Saul and about Jonathan, and there is no room for anything else. And that brings us to our question today. And this is an interesting one. I was, in putting together this message, the idea that David would solidify Saul's history in a song, and the song would not include any of the stuff that we would have included in it. I wonder what, let me put it this way, if you were asked to write a song about your life, I wonder what that song would sound like. And this is what I want you considering as we close today. 
If you were to write a song about your life, and some of you are like, I'm not musical, like I can't even imagine that. Okay, if some, if like a really famous singer was hired to write a song about your life, what would, what would be in that song? What would the genre of that song be? Right, would it be like country or like Korean pop? I don't know, like, <laughs> what's the genre? And, and what are the words in the song? What, here's another one. Who's the main character? Is the song about you or is it about his faithfulness? What would be included? And what I'm saying here is think about the stuff you always talk about in regard to your life. Those are the things in your song. What are the verses? What are the choruses? Is the chorus a praise chorus to you? Because of all you've overcome and and all the things that you've conquered in your life? Is there a tiny little bridge about that one person who did that one thing to you? Or is your heart like David's heart? That at the end of all of it, if you had to record your history, the song is a worship song to God. Because this is his story and not your story. So that's what I wanna leave you with today. You don't have to go write a song, but I want you considering if someone was to record a song about your life, what would be included in that based off of what you talk about the most? Because so much of our words are filled with filth and complaining and sorrow and sadness. Stuff that doesn't make good worship songs. If you were gonna have a song about your life, would it reflect the kind of perspective that David brought in the reflection on his life in regard to David and Saul? Because if it's not, I think we have some work to do in changing our perspectives. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.